today on Gigadimian Powers. You know what? What if just because you die, it doesn't mean you get the answers? Doesn't mean that what if whatever happens after you die isn't nothing? It isn't going to heaven or whatever your your spiritual beliefs afterlife is. What if it's not your atoms returning, becoming part of the energy of the universe? What if it's something completely different? But whatever that is, doesn't mean you get the answers. And even more than that, what if everyone else gets the answers? But for some strange reason, me, what if I'm the one person that just because I'm the one person who wants to know that bad, what if the entire, I'm like, I know I'm not not that self-centered, but what if for some reason the universe said, you know what? Everyone else in existence and throughout all of human history gets to find out what happens to us when we die. But you, because you're so obsessed about it, you're not getting the answer. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson, and you are listening to Geekdom in Pals. Geekdom in Pals is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it is us, who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their stories. Geekdom in Pals creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt, and we are in episode 80, and still every new person has a completely different story, even though this, today's guest knows about six or seven previous guests on the show. Our guest today is Jeremy Burley, an American artist and writer. His comic book Morningstar is amazing. There's so much to tell you about this conversation, but I don't want to spoil anything. So let me just say this. I will give you a fair warning. The conversation is fun and flowing, and Jeremy is very charismatic, but it starts off with heavy stuff. You know, like in the 80s, heavy. Hopefully you can take that, because that's fun too. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Let's listen. Yeah, so I met Jim through uh, through Javier Hernandez many years ago. Uh, I went to a uh, an animation festival out in uh, in Claremont, California. It's in, in Southern California. It's kind of a suburb of LA, mm. and um, I went to that uh, that animation festival. And uh, I had known of Jim. I had heard of him through through some of his work on the internet, and, and another artist that, whose work I followed mentioned him. But um, but I met Jim Javier through Javier introduced me to Jim. I met a few other artists through him, and uh, Ken Mora, your first interview. Yes, I met him for the first time um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I met him in person. Oh, um, the art casters. So so Joshua Kimball, Corey Kerr, um, and uh, and Scott Circlin they had an in-person get-together in California and they invited me to come along because I've, I've known all of them just peripherally through the internet through years. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and Scott specifically, I met him. I went to a convention in Arizona that I was doing for a few years in a row. And so I got to know him personally. And so he kind of introduced me to the rest of the guy. It, it's just, it's all incestuous. Just at a certain point, like artists in Southern California just start slowly just getting to know each other and we all filter mm-hmm. through eventually. That's that's amazing. I think some of you I found through, you know, I got to, uh, I think I got to Javier through Ken, uh, through Ken, and, but some of, you know, because I follow people on Twitter, I just go back, go deep, and I see who they react to, and then I, I, I see, oh, who's that, who's that, and that's how I find them, so you are, like, your group is the first incestuous uh, uh, group I have. I have another one, uh, uh, that uh, like in uh, in Spain, I okay. started interviewing um, uh, the publisher of uh, of uh, the they do science fiction, but only for my women or non-binary uh, authors. So I interviewed mm-hmm. two of the authors and the translator and the publisher, and that's one incestuous thing. And now we're working on something else as well. So it's growing. There's so many gigs around, and some you know, and. 
I'm all those people you know are super talented. So they, that is amazing and they have great episodes. I'm trying to feed off of their energy, uh, you know, riding on their coattails. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of those, the two things behind you I can see. One is uh, a picture with uh, 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 panels on it, and the other mm -hmm. is uh, kind of a Chinese uh, uh, painting. Can you talk about those two? Oh, sure, of course. Well, first, the picture with the panels on it. This is an artist that I do not know personally. Mm -hmm. um, their, their name is Chats with the Void. And um, I believe they're, they are non-binary. So I don't know um, what, I can't remember from their website what their pronouns were, okay. but, um, but they do a, an existential comic book called Chats, uh, Chats from the Void. It's a web comic they post on Instagram. Okay. And this particular panel, I saw it one day and I went to their website to see if they had it available for purchase because they, they put all of the, I believe all of their, the comics are available to purchase prints of. And I bought a print of it because this panel pretty much sums up my worldview in life. And you as a creator know how powerful it is when you see a piece of work that resonates to your core. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you real briefly what, what it says. So it's, it's two elephants. One is an actual elephant. And the other one is sort of a spirit of an elephant as a skeleton. And that's a, an ongoing theme in their work of these exit. They're, they're intentionally existential cartoons. They're not fun. Some of them have a little bit humorous, but not meant to be funny. They're philosophical cartoons. And in this one, it's got the, the earthbound elephant saying, someday the earth will be gone with a question mark. And the, the, the spirit elephant is like, yes. Far, far from now, but yes. And the elephant says, the sun too? The elephant's like, yes, even the sun is temporary. Does this scare you? And the elephant says, the earthbound elephant says, honestly, no. I find it oddly comforting that nothing lasts. It makes me and my problems feel nice and small. <laughs> so that's, that's Chats with the Void, and there it's Chats with the Void on Instagram. So I definitely, if people get nothing from this interview, it's that there's another artist you should go follow and check out their work. And who knows, maybe you should reach out to them and, and see if they're willing to, to do an interview. But they're, they're beautiful, deeply philosophical, poetic cartoons that they, they post. And uh, yeah, so that one just, it, it spoke with me and I, I went, I purchased a print and I, I love it. Um, the wait, 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 hold on, before we get to the other one, I want to know why it spoke with me. You know, it's a deep, deep, thing but most people react to the fact that everything in the end will end mm -hmm. uh with deep fear mm -hmm. uh, and you don't no i don't um well here's the the thing people who first get to know me think that i am extremely optimistic and cheery and upbeat and people who've known me for a long time think that i'm one of the darkest people that they know and I think that they are two sides of the same coin um, in the sense that I have a deep existential streak in me in that no, no one gets out of life alive. Um, wow. in the end, yeah. yeah, in the end, we all return from whence we came. I don't know where we go after this. I don't know where we came before this. And at a certain point, I mean, I went through a large important part of my life. I had a lot of existential dread about what happens to us after we die and um at a certain point i will tell you i mean if you want to just jump right into the deep stuff i will tell you that uh, something i don't talk about very often but when i was in high school i had a, a certain amount of i wouldn't say it was suicidal ideation but it drove me so crazy that I didn't know what the meaning of life was, what religion was the right religion, what, what, what is the real nature of reality? It drove me so nuts that at points I started wondering, well, I started thinking about, I, I didn't idolize suicide, but I started thinking about, well, I have to know. To the point of me thinking about wanting, knowing was almost more important than living the life that we have here. And it drove me nuts for a while as things drive teenagers nuts. And you're, there's all sorts of problems that in the long run you realize, that's not a problem. Why are you worried about that? That's stupid. And I somehow I came to realization 
while I was still in high school, you know what? What if just because you die, it doesn't mean you get the answers? Doesn't mean that what if whatever happens after you die isn't nothing? It isn't going to heaven or whatever your your spiritual beliefs afterlife is. What if it's not your atoms returning, becoming part of the energy of the universe? What if it's something completely different? But whatever that is, doesn't mean you get the answers. And even more than that, what if everyone else gets the answers? But for some strange reason, me, what if I'm the one person that just because I'm the one person who wants to know that bad, what if the entire, I, I'm like, I know I'm not, I'm not that self-centered, but what if for some reason the universe said, you know what? Everyone else in existence and throughout all of human history gets to find out what happens to us when we die. But you, because you're so obsessed about it, you're not getting the answer. Now, I know that that's not, that's highly improbable, but what if? And that means that I would have wasted my life or I could spend my whole life obsessing about something that I have no control over. And then when the opportunity comes, I think I'm going to get the answer. I still don't get the answer, which I think is in line with a lot of my actual experience in life in that a lot of the times the things we obsess about when the things that we're afraid of, you know, a lot of times they don't end up being as bad as they were, as bad as we feared they would be, or the things that we looked forward to, they don't end up being necessarily as great as we had hoped. They're just experiences. And it's up to us to decide how we feel about those experiences in the moment. So, and that I think, shifted me it radically shifted my worldview at a young age in terms of you know just i almost feel sometimes like i'm a little bit too wishy-washy or too passive in the world in the sense that i don't control anything except for what comes out of my body and and out of my hands and my own actions so i can't control this universe so i just need to decide what i want to do and when things happen that are out of my control, the only thing I can decide is how I want to feel about them, how I want to process them. And I may not always have control of that. Sometimes things will make me angry when, even when I don't want to be angry. Sometimes things will make me sad even when I don't want to be sad. I just try to control the things that I can and make peace with, with the, the world around me and make my way through the world like that. So that's why that particular cartoon spoke so deeply to me. Yeah, it's 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 much deeper than it sounds because in the end, like you say, okay, so you, you understand that uh, everything's going to die. And you in any in any case, the universe is so big, and we are all just tiny specks, yeah. tiny atoms in the thing. So it can give us propor- you know proportions of not everything is uh, as big as we think it is. But what what you went through is actually much deeper than that, and I've. And that's why it speaks to you. And I found like you're the second person I talked uh, talk to me about that this week about thoughts of suicide while having, while being a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I found so now I know uh, three people who talk to me about this. Including you. And in with all of them, what they have is like they don't want to commit suicide anymore. But what they have is is. Uh, a healthy look at death or health. But, you know, then they're not frightened like Woody Allen is frightened in his movies about every little thing can kill him and uh, he needs to realize what the meaning of everything is. But it's kind of, you look at death and you say, okay, you know, it's there. It's okay if it happens. It's okay if it doesn't happen. And that, that, is a common thread I see, at least with the people I know. I, well, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that, I mean, I know people for whom they are not at peace with the idea of their own mortality. I know people for whom a lot of their life is wrapped up in fear. It's wrapped up in whether they're going to be able to accomplish the things they want to accomplish. Um, they're wrapped up in whether they're going to be remembered. Um whether they're gonna whether they're gonna leave behind a creative legacy, um, whether they're gonna be able to leave behind a legacy for their family and loved ones behind. Um, I just it all just seems like it's eventually going to return to dust. And I mean, I mean, when you look at all of the artists 
that we do remember from history. When you look at like the old masters of the Renaissance, when you look at like ancient Greek sculptors who we think we may know their names. Um, and yes, there's, the museums are filled with artists whose work we, we treasure and we, we hold on to. But that said, the relationship that we have between ourselves and that work it to me i can't imagine being anything remotely like the relationship that someone creating that work expects to have with a person like i'm not thinking like, first off i'm still not arrogant enough to think that my work is going to live beyond my existence if people do and they enjoy it beyond that i hope so if people enjoy my work thousands of years from now then that's great i'm i'm grateful that i made something that's worthy of that um for the most part, I make work for myself. I make it for myself in the sense that I find the act, the creative process is the most fulfilling thing for me. Writing and drawing, being at the drawing board, um, going to figure drawing classes, which I, I've been taking figure drawing classes every week for like over a decade now. Um, just everything about the creative process, I find that is when I feel like I am the most alive. It's when I feel the most connected to the universe in that sense that a lot of people struggle for purpose. They're looking for meaning in their life. And for me, when I'm making things, that is when I feel like whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, whether the actual work itself is coming out poorly or not, I feel like I'm engaging with existence in the manner in which I was constructed to create. I feel in alignment with the universe. Um, and the only reason for me, I know, you know, if, if I, if that's how I feel, why don't I just make my work and just put it in a drawer and just shut away and no one else ever, ever has to see it. Well, see, that's when the practicalities of the civilization that humans have built come in, or rather, let's say impracticalities, because we have to feed ourselves. We have to clothe ourselves. Um, we have to find shelter. If we have family, we have to provide for them. And I don't make my living as an artist full time. I mean, well, I do actually make my living as an artist, but I don't make my living making my personal work full time. I'm very, very lucky that I have a, a day job that's also creative. Um, but the idea of doing my work and sharing it with others, that's more about the fact that while I am extremely lucky to have the job that I have, that means that for the most part, I only get to make work that is personal for me one, maybe two hours per day. So wow. the, I, yeah, not, not a lot. It's not, and you know what, honestly, if you look at how miserable a lot of other people seem mm -hmm. to feel like you're on top of the world and in line with the universe for an hour or two a day, that unto itself is still a gift. Yeah. That's a gift. I'm just greedy. I want more. <laughs> So, sure. so, pro so producing work and sharing with others is a means of trying to make the artwork. It's not necessarily like I'm doing it just for the profit. I'm doing it for the, for the personal gratification. But if the more profitable I can make it, the more time I can put towards creating. Because I mean, for me in a dream existence, I would just wake up, roll out of bed, get some exercise because I've learned over these years that, that maintaining your health is just as important to all creatives as, as anything else. Getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, getting, you know, having the right nutrition. If you want to have a long creative life, then you got to care of all those things. If you want to like go out like in a blaze of glory, then just smoke, drink and eat yourself to death by all means. I certainly, I, I, I wouldn't, the, the libertarian life is like a siren call, but I, the more practical side of me says, you know what? Let's let's play the long game. I can also tell you that when you get to be my age and you have three kids, you get to be super tired at 9 p.m. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to be able to function at 9 p.m. or nobody needs anything from you, and you, maybe you want to, in my case, right? In your case, uh, and uh, uh, then if you exercise, then you have energy for that. And if you don't, you just fall asleep in your time and you can't do anything. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to go on a... I, I feel like the, the problem... Okay, I will tell you up front. 
Yeah. I have a, a very branching universe mind. Like my mind feels like it's sort of like the multiverse. The fact that I'll start on a point and I will reach, I, I see branches in my mind of different topics and I'll go and usually I'm able to touch on all of them and then pull them back to the original thread. However, there were two or three threads that I danced over there that I feel like, oh yeah, those are gone. But you know what? We'll, 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 I'm we sure may get back to that. We'll get back to yes. that. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. This is purely a practicality of live streaming. Um, I have been live streaming on YouTube and recently I started doing it on, doing it on multi-streaming. So I'm doing it on Facebook and Twitch at the same time. Um, but I've been live streaming for probably, oh, maybe four or five years now. I, I can't remember how many years it was since I started live streaming. It used to be that when I was working on my comp books, because it takes me a long time to finish an issue. I, for the most part, working around my day job, only getting one or two hours a day to make art, I, um, I would be able to put out maybe one or two issues of a comp book a year, 24 page issues. So producing anywhere, you know, around 40, you know, 48 pages or so of comics, you know, material a year. Because I wasn't able to work on a monthly schedule or even a quarterly schedule, I thought, I need to keep my work in front of people because for the most part, I usually, my main method of distribution is comic book conventions. And I, it wasn't that I was doing like, some people will do a comic book convention like every other week or they're doing like two or three, like they're on the road, you know, almost every weekend of the year. For me, it was more like I might do anywhere from four to six shows a year. But beyond that, if I'm only putting out one or two issues a year, even if someone sees me a couple of times a year, it's not like I have a new issue every month. So I thought I want to stay in touch with people that had the kindness to pick up my work. And even that, even more than that, they enjoyed it enough that they're like, I want to see what you're doing next. So I started out before live streaming. I set up my desk that I would have um, a camera above my, uh, my drawing table. I'm actually sitting at my drawing table right now with a laptop on top of it. So this is kind of my, my live stream setup. Um, but I would have a camera above my drawing table and I would just film myself whatever I'm working on. So if I'm doing thumbnails, if I'm doing... Um, if I'm doing uh, page layouts, if I'm inking, whatever it was, I would film, I would film time-lapse videos. And then I would just post the time-lapse. And then I started doing a thing where I'd post the time-lapse and I would do like a short narration of them, just kind of narrating what I was thinking about or, you know, thoughts and ideas. And I did that for a number of years. You can pretty much watch the creation of my, my, comp, my most recent project, Morningstar. I started doing, um, posting on YouTube, I think, shortly after I'd finished the first issue and was working on the second issue. So you pretty much watched the entire graphic novel being drawn over the past decade through, through my YouTube channel. And I got to the point where people would ask questions on the, um, the videos I would post. And a lot of them were like, oh, well, these were really good questions. Um, I would try to answer them in the comments. But I found it difficult to speak extemporaneously about what I was thinking and feeling when I was making that art. If I might be recording the actual audio to go with that video a week later, sometimes I would have a bunch of videos saved up, so maybe a month later, and just trying to remember what I was thinking and feeling when I made that was challenging. And I kept thinking, you know what? This would be so much easier if I could just talk while I'm drawing, which is counterintuitive to most artists. Most artists a lot of times say, you know what, I can't, talk and draw at the same time, or they don't like this really, you know, they're fine live streaming if they don't have to answer questions, but it, it can be challenging. But the fact that I had built that muscle up by probably spending four or five years looking at my work and then trying to think and talk about it while I was looking at it, that kind of built up a muscle to speak extemporaneously about creativity and about art and the creative process. Um, and I tell that to people, like when I talk to other artists that are talking about the challenge of, of live streaming, and I told them I didn't start out being able to talk and draw at the same time. It, it was a muscle that I built up. And over time, it was an exercise that I grew and I built. And this is going to tie into the background. <laughs> um, but eventually, I got to the point where I had shown so much of my creative process, multiple issues. I've walked people through my thumbnails, my pencils, my inking. I even did a, a very long video that was almost like a, a slideshow presentation showing people my writing process 
Um, that's actually probably my most popular video because people just said like, how do you write now? Well, I've done a, I've made one video. This is me branching. I'm, I'm yeah. still tied off. But I had made one video where I realized I, there was a particular issue of the comic where I had filmed the entire creative process from my, my thumbnail sketches to my, my page layouts, to me lettering it on the computer, to me printing those out and inking the finished pages, to me doing my digital gray tones because the comics are black and white. So it's literally like I had the entire stage, all the stages of one particular issue. So I put together a video where I showed like, I can't remember if I showed, I don't think I showed a whole issue, but I showed one particular page where I found the videos for each of those phases and put together one video to show somebody one comp page being made from start to finish. And I kind of talked my way narrated through it. And one, a couple of comments struck me there. Someone said, Hey, this was really useful and interesting. Can you do that for writing? And I thought to myself, Hmm, I think that's challenging for any writer. I think it's actually more challenging for writing comics in the sense that you're now talking about writing a visual medium. So I think that in a, a way, it becomes existentially more abstract because the things you're describing, it's not just describing, you know, if you're just describing prose, there's a certain audiobook aspect to talking people through what you're expressing and why. But when you're talking about how you're going to interact with something that's visual, then it's like you kind of need visual aids. But I sat down and I made like a slideshow presentation and I you know, walked, walked people through a video where I showed with examples of my comic books, how I start with my outlining phase and then my, my, um, my layout, you know, where I break down my story into actual pages and, and panels and my dialogue phase. Going through all of that, that's a long side journey. Um, but eventually I realized I wanted to start doing live streaming simply so that I could be drawing and talk, I could literally, because for me, my most interesting thoughts about creativity come when I'm drawing, when I'm, when I'm writing, when I'm, I'm, when I'm drawing, when I'm actually at the board, I'm looking down, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the process. And I thought, I can just tell people what's on my mind. Um, within, within a certain degree of reasonableness, you know, we all have an inner monologue of what we're, we're doing. And I thought I can just tell people, this is what I'm thinking when I'm doing this. You want to know what I'm thinking when I'm making this line, when I'm drawing these shapes, when I erase this, when I move this around. I just, I just tell people that. And I can interact with them in real time when they ask me questions about it. Um, and true, if I'm talking about something that's particularly deep and it really, I need to think about it, I'll stop drawing for a minute and I'll look at the camera and I'll, I'll talk. Um, and, but then once I get over the, the, the more thorny parts of the, a question, then I can go back to drawing and continuing to, to talk about it. So all of that to say that behind this screen yeah. is a bunch of art supplies and my studio is not particularly tidy. Um, whenever I see videos of, of artists, YouTubers, they have the, the nice, they've got the plant there and they've got the, mm. the cup holders and the beautiful rack with all the markers nicely arranged. In my mind, I'm just like, lies, all lies. <laughs> Um, because artists we, we tend to be, be 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 filthy hoarder creatures. We just, just keep tons of art supplies and they're just all over and piled up. Um, it's not that bad, but it's bad enough that I always wanted to have a better backdrop. And it's good. It's, it yeah, well, and I see you've got a nice you know in, green screen background in, behind you. In the beginning, what I usually have behind me is laundry. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> When I when I'm calling, but it's actually a closet, and mm -hmm. I recorded the first few episodes just with the closet behind me, and it was mm -hmm. so boring. So now I, I I changed the picture behind me, and mm -hmm. I do feel bad because it's obviously fake and it looks like I'm hiding something, <laughs> but it's just boring. It's you got a part of a window and a closet, and sometimes laundry, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, but I mean, I I tried to go your route originally because I thought mm -hmm. I can I've got artwork that I can put behind me. Sure. But for some reason, the green screen function wouldn't work with, um, I was using StreamYard for my, my uh, streaming and it has a green screen option in it. And I bought a physical green screen. It's laying over there against a the wall right now because I put it behind the green screen, like attached to the back of my chair. 
and I tried to get it to work and it didn't work. Um, it probably works with Zoom. Um, it might work with OBS, but at a certain point I was just like, you know what? I, I, I tried it, it didn't, didn't work. I, and I just thought, what about just a nice Japanese screen? I went online, found a Japanese screen. I like the way it looks. And that is a very, very long answer to a very, very simple question. So be well, forewarned. <laughs> the point, this, this isn't actually a quiz. So the point is not to answer the questions. The point is to find <laughs> out who you are. So we're doing that. That's great. Um, and I also think you answered a big part, a big chunk of uh, you know, what I usually ask is, uh, what's your origin story? Mm-hmm. But I, so I would like to like narrow down because uh, to the origin story behind Lucifer, uh, the comic book hero. And I don't mean where the idea came from. I mean further back. There's obviously something huge there that come. You can't see my hand going like this. Never mind. So that's the green screen. So there's obviously something huge behind the story and and the world building there reminds me a lot of uh you know um the way uh, his name just i had it a second ago it escaped me uh now sika is built in mononoke oh, Miyazaki. yes Miyazaki. yes and uh which is amazing amazing world building like classic the way you actually the way i love the most uh, to, 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 to world building science fiction. And so there's something huge behind it. So I want to know what is the origin, origin story of the idea? Okay. Um, well, the origin story of the idea, <laughs> it's so funny. Um, that I can actually remember. Hold on. That's not the answer behind that, before that. That's the next step. What you were going to say is the next step. What's the first step? Well, that, that, that's a little bit complicated. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I, um, so San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough that living in Southern California, I went for the first time when I was in high school. I had a, a writing partner. I was already a fan of comic books. Um, I had a writing partner and we worked on a couple of indie comics together. In fact, we had met some people that were starting an indie studio um, and that ended up publishing a few shorts. It didn't you know, really develop into anything major beyond that. But um, sending you a Comic-Con back then, I don't know if they have it still now, but they had a volunteer program where you could volunteer to work for San Diego Comic-Con. And by work for them, um, it would be like the people who would manage the lines, people coming in and out. Um, our, uh, the thing that we usually did, I think the whole time we were there, is sometimes it was ma- managing the lines for particular creators if they would have a lot of you know people waiting for them. But we tended to, what my friend and I ended up doing, I think all, all three days, because back then I think it was a three-day show, um, all three days that we were there, was stuffing the bags that you would get when you come in that have like all the free comic books and the, the program for the, the convention and all of that. Um, you know, we would do that. Like you come in and you do work for like three hours, four hours of just doing stuff for the convention. And after that, you get to go, you just get to enjoy the convention for free. So you, you work for them and then you would get to go and enjoy the convention. So I went when I was, I want to say, I can't remember if it was when I was 16 and 17 or 17 and 18, but I was in high school. And oddly enough, um, like San Diego isn't close enough that I could just drive down there and drive back. But I had a job in high school that I, I made enough money that my buddy and I, we, we both had jobs. So we could afford a hotel room. And this is back in the, uh, in the 90s when they would just, two high school kids could just book a hotel room without a credit card. <laughs> so we just got a hotel in a, a not great part of downtown San Diego. And we would just walk down every morning, work for a couple of hours, then go and do the convention. In the meantime, I was taking my portfolio around, trying to get portfolio reviews, buying some comics, 
um, going to panels, going to interviews, doing this and that. And in between, I was sitting around, my friend and I were just uh, sitting at a table, um, eating some snacks, waiting for, for another panel. I was sketching and I started sketching these cowboys. And for some reason, I had this cowboy, this big, you know, hulking, you know, hefty guy in a trench coat holding a shotgun. And I just looked at him and I drew angel wings on him. I don't know why. I don't know why I just did, which I, I, I guess for, for context for, for your audience, my comic book Morningstar is the story of Lucifer's fall from heaven, but it's told as a Western. So in the moment that I drew that sketch. A Western for angels, yes. A Western for angels. So the whole idea is that it takes place. I always say that the, uh, it, the idea is that the dawn of creation, the universe is this raw, untamed frontier. It's like a wild west. So there's these seven archangels. They're like the Magnificent Seven. And Lucifer begins the story as their leader. He's actually the marshal of heaven. Because, you know, he wasn't created to be evil. He was supposed to be perfect. He's supposed to be the brightest of all the angels. So how does he go from being the brightest of all the angels to the source of all evil? That's the question that I was trying to answer in the story. And I didn't have all of that in my head when I drew this sketch. All I knew is I drew a sketch and that just goes to show, you know, ideas come from everywhere. Um, so I just drew this sketch and I knew that I wanted to do something with angels and devils. And um, I know in high school I had read, uh, I was, re I'd read Sandman, uh, Neil Gaiman, Sandman. Yeah. And my favorite arc in that entire series is the second, I think it's the second or third volume, the season of Miss, where um, he has to go down to, to hell to, to free his, um, you know, a woman who, who spurned him and he sent her to hell because of it. But in the meantime, Lucifer ends up deciding, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And he, just he just closes up hell and leaves. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole battle for who's going to take over hell afterwards. Anyway, that story, again, and that, I think that the seeds of me doing Morningstar were planted in, in that, reading that as well. And just the idea of a character deciding not to follow the obligations or the rules that were laid out before him, which again, that's kind of what got him into trouble in the first place. Um, but I, I know that you, in terms of you saying what's even before that, I know that even what I've, what that right there may not get to the, the essence. I feel like I still have not necessarily answered the question that, that you're looking for. No, no, I think, I think you did because what I heard was two really big things. One is how does someone good, someone ideal, become bad or evil? Which is a huge question to ask. You do like you you start writing not knowing the answer, mm -hmm. uh, but you know you have a path to take. And while you're figuring it out before the readers do, you figure it out for yourself. And mm -hmm. sometimes the answer is incomplete even when you find it for you. Uh, and the other thing is about breaking the rules and, uh, and getting into trouble. And I think those are the main things that, that, that Morningstar is about from your point of view, like from mm -hmm. the reason for writing it, the reason it is the way it is. That's what I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and I like, generally speaking, I prefer to let people come up with their own conclusions. I would say Morningstar is probably the more heavy-handed of my works because when I do standalone art pieces, illustrations and, and prints, I intentionally do work that aims to be provocative without being prescriptive. I don't want to tell people what to think, but I want to make them think. Um, I would say that Morningstar, I mean, unto itself, just the premise alone is usually enough to make someone at least curious. Um, I mean, for me, honestly, just starting with the sketch, it made me curious about wanting to, to flesh out that world and expand it and, uh, and go even further. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, honestly, yeah, making it was more for me trying to understand this. Like you said, me trying to understand those questions myself. 
what I mean is, is, is not that, you know, it's a two-dimensional thing and this is the only point. Obviously, when you create something, when you have a visual that you like, it speaks to you on many levels and it has depths that you don't even realize yet. But I'll give an example of, uh, I don't know if you've seen Babylon 5. Uh, I have not, but I, it comes highly regarded, um, highly recommended. I just haven't made time to watch it yet. But I, 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 really I'm, not, I'm not sure it, 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 it try, you know, it, it, it survived that well after 20 years. But mm-hmm. at the time, it was super evolutionary. It was uh, amazing. And the creator was talking to us on this new thing called the internet. And, you know, uh, <laughs> in talking about this process. But the point is that also not all seasons are made equal, you know. And, uh, uh, but he, and his thing is basically the thing that created most of the science fiction that came later because he, met, he found a way to serialize something that was supposed to be episodic. And um, in any case, the entire five seasons, the entire world, all the mysteries also were all created by one question, which he asked himself, how much is a secret worth? Because he was reading about uh, Churchill in World War II and they figured out Enigma and they knew that a certain city was going in, in uh, England was going to uh, be bombed and they couldn't clear out uh, the, the citizens because that would tell the Germans that they cracked the code and then they wouldn't win the war. So they let the city be bombed. And there are pictures of uh, Churchill walking among the ruins, and you know that he knew this would happen. And so the question that plagued uh, Josh Stojinsky was uh, how much is a secret worth? And he wrote entire five years about that, but he only got to that in season, I think, three and four. And he built up to it and he talked about tons of other stuff and so on. But the main thing that spoke to him created the world. That's the feeling I got when you talked about those two things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... When I'm making any particular project, a lot of times, and I think this is true for a lot of creatives, what I think it's about when I start it is not the same as what I think it's about while I'm in the middle of making it. It's usually more often than not, I will look at works that I've created years later. I will look at it and be like, oh, in retrospect, I can see what this is really about. And a lot of times it's because I might have been going through something that I didn't fully understand. And once I've processed that, I can look back and say, oh no, that's really what this artwork is about. So yeah, I think that that's true for, for all works, whether you're the creator or the viewer, you know, people who come back to works years later and say, oh, I, well, I'm getting this out of the different stages in life. It's not because the art changed, it's because you changed. And I think that we, so a lot of times yeah. we forget that it's not necessarily even that the creator is a genius, creators change. Mm-hmm. And we have a different relationship with our work than we did at the time we created it. Yeah, I can tell you about my own stuff. Like, the, I look back at books that are published and stories that, everyone, and each of them is my, is where I was at the time I was writing. So even though I, I can enjoy them and like them, I would, I would never write that again. I would never do that again. If I had to do that, not having done it, I wouldn't do it like that, or I wouldn't do it at all. I, I, in a different place every, you know, at different, episodes, at different times of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not nostalgic about stuff that I wrote. You know, that's fine. That was then, don't care about it now. I'm, I'm where I am now. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me of the thing I wanted to ask you about. When you said you wrote, you could just as easily, you know, write, a, write and do the art and then, you know, put it in a drawer, but uh, you know, there's also money involved. I'm also thinking that we do have a need to share what we feel. Mm-hmm. And I think the stories we tell are stories that we want to share. It's okay if no one listens, but you would like to find like-minded uh, people and also to make people understand who you are. So I think we would give, this is, I think, why artists 
and writers work for free all the time because we just want to share the stuff uh, that we do mm-hmm. at all the time, you know, when you're beginning. Um, anyway, so can you talk about, like, let, uh, now I want to talk about less the artistic side of things and how you got your audience and how you saw your audience built over time. Well, I would say that my audience is still pretty small. Um, my audience on YouTube isn't huge. Um, the audience that I have, people that look for me when I come to certain conventions I've done multiple years in a row, um, it's, it's always nice to have people that are, are wondering where I am or like they'll, they'll get on Twitter and message me like, where are you set up? Where's your booth this year? Cause I just didn't, you know, didn't see you. And you know, it's like, I'm, I'm in this spot, you know, um, I would still say that those things are still growing modestly. So when I talk when I think about audience growth, it's, it's stubbornness. It's just continuing to stay in the fight and continue to produce work. And even knowing that I'm not producing it as quickly as I, I would like to, it's the fact that I still continue, that I just, you know, show up every day. And if I only get to draw one comic panel or, you know, get a little bit of color done on this one illustration I'm working on, then that's all I get. But just keep doing it. And, and um, I'd say that social media has been very useful in expanding that audience. Um, mostly in the mostly in the the sense of the the live streaming, I'm interacting with more people. And a lot of them are, are I'm interacting with are it's more of an educational aspect. They're people who are fellow creators or they're aspiring creators and they're asking questions about process. Um, if they're people that are are you know I also know on conventions, it's nice. I mean, like you know mentioning earlier about the art casters, it's really nice to have artists who I've seen at conventions to be able to just sit down and be online with them and talk shop. Just talk about what we've been doing, what we've been trying work-wise, creation-wise. Um, I mean, when it comes to audience building, there's the things that people always say is like, start up a mailing list. They say, when's the best time to start a mailing list? 10 years ago, when's the second best time right now? Um, I've always had a process of, I guess, before it was just blogging. And I would just blog and I would post, even before I was live streaming, I would blog and I would post parts of whatever my creative process was, whatever my thoughts were. Sometimes not necessarily about making art, sometimes it's just about stuff in my life, just day-to-day things, you know, not necessarily what I had for dinner, but just, you know, other other events and kind of narrating my, my, my day-to-day existence. Um, and what I started doing a long time ago was setting up a newsletter that would pull from my blog, like an RSS feed, and would take like a certain number of posts and just put those go with the images and send that out. Um, when the RSS technology a few years ago stopped being as viable, I switched over to, um, to an email service. You started a mailing list and just, you know, asking people at conventions. I wouldn't even ask people to sign up at conventions. I would just leave a mailing list there at the table with a with a pen and people will come by they look through my comics maybe they pick up a comic maybe they pick up a print and they'd be like oh and they would just sign up for my my mailing list and so just i would do a thing where once a month i would just send out a, an an email it would be a collection of what went from blogging before became patreon so now with patreon i tried to post it used to be that i was really good about posting five days a week sometimes I'm only able to post like, you know, three days a week. But what I try to do is 50% of the posts are Patreon exclusive. So it's just for the patrons and it's, you know, stuff just for them. 50% of them will become public posts, but I post them early. And the ones that eventually do become public posts, I pull from that material to put together a monthly newsletter. And so the monthly newsletter will just be some blog posts along some animated GIFs showing, uh, Whatever, because as I'm working now, I've switched to working mostly digitally. And I'll just take, you know, screenshots as I go and I'll just put those together, make an animated GIF of just whatever I got done that day. And that's a post. It's just a post of just an animated GIF of like you're seeing an image just kind of, it's like stop motion, just watching it. Oh, this part of the character got sketched in and this part and this part is slowly getting drawn. And that, along with either thoughts about 
that particular piece that I'm working on or just thoughts about, I don't know, existential dread or a cartoon that I, I ran into or like I'll share books or movies that I find that are interesting. You know, just, just you know, a, a whole variety of what's going on. It's not as well thought out and curated as some creators newsletters. Like some creators are very great about the promotion and this is the product I've got out this month. And these are the, the people that I interviewed if I have a show and these are my recommendations and they're, they're very organized with that. With me, it's a lot more stream of consciousness. And to be fair, I think I might be doing comics, making more revenue from it or closer to making it a full-time job if I were more methodical. So it's not that I have a disdain for people that are well-organized, that are very savvy marketers. I wish that I were better at it. And I know that there's places where I can improve. But the fact that so much of my day is eaten up by not doing my personal art, that when I do get to do it, I honestly, you know, I try to pay it. For me, doing a newsletter and live streaming is like, okay, I'm doing like the bare basics. And a lot of other people who don't even do that will look at me and say, man, it looks like you've got it all together and you're out there and you're promoting yourself. And I'm like, no, there's many, 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 many creators that are far better at it than I am. There's creators who have like a, an excellent pipeline where they might not even be live streaming, but they're just so good at promoting their newsletter, getting people to sign up for their newsletter, providing work for them to buy on a regular basis from their newsletter and making that newsletter entertaining. That, that's all they need. They're just really good at that. Um, I, I try to keep my marketing activities focused on things that I enjoy doing because that way I won't stop promoting myself altogether. Because yeah. um, I know a lot of artists have a, a love-hate relationship with promoting. I'm not shy. I'm not bashful about trying to get my work out there. But at the same time, I do fundamentally mostly want to spend my time writing and drawing. So for me, when I'm live streaming, I'm writing and drawing. I'm just talking to the people while I'm doing it. Um, I mean, honestly, I could be drawing right now while we're having this conversation. Um, I, you know, my iPad's actually in front of me in the place where it is where I'm usually live streaming. But the point is, is that me having conversations with people while I draw, that's, I've gotten used to it now that I can do that. Um, the newsletter is just me collecting the other stuff that I'm already sharing. And it's more of curating and organizing. So it doesn't feel like it's that much of a chore. Um, and I think the people who are really, really great at that, at the level of marketing self-promotion where they've created a finely tuned engine of engaging with people and providing them something that they're generally interested in, I think those people enjoy that activity. So that's, I mean, most of the people I know, like the people I, most people I know who are really, really good at marketing actually really enjoy it. And for me, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's that I, I stick to the aspects of marketing that I really do enjoy. Like there's a lady who's, who has a whole podcast that I listen to that's about marketing and she's great at it, but she hates doing video. She really like just doesn't enjoy it, but she keeps telling herself she needs to do it. She needs to do it more. I'm like, and this is a lady who's got like a multi-million dollar business because that's nothing to do with comics. It's just about marketing and, and course building. But I'm like, the one thing that she hates doing is like the thing that I love doing the most, you know? Yeah. Nice. It's, if you notice strength, that took me a lot of time because, uh, you know, stuff that I don't like to do takes me months to do. So, uh, yeah, if you stick to your strengths, it's better to do that than to do nothing, you know? So what else are you working on now? What do you want to say that we didn't talk about? Um, well, let's see. Well, oddly enough, I, I'm not ready to start promoting the next comic book that I'm working on only because I'm still outlining. Um, and it's kind of a reinterpretation of a, of a Greek mythology piece. But I want to research it thoroughly and explore all the different paths that I can potentially explore because I'm gonna try and structure the comic such that 
it can be kind of like a self-contained graphic novel. And if that does well, like the, the idea is to do like two 24 page one shot comics that can be collected into a 48 page graphic novella. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to structure the story so that I can end up doing six issues, three novellas. I can collect them all individually, but let's say that I do that first collected one and it lands with crickets and like nobody's interested. Nobody's feeling it. Mm-hmm. If I'm really enjoying telling the story, then I'll finish those other two volumes. But if I'm like, ah, eh, this is a slog and people aren't that interested, then I'll, maybe I'll move on to something else. Because the thing that I realized from doing Morningstar was that it was an eight-issue series. And it pretty much took me about a decade to complete. Because there were little projects I had here and there in between. There was a point halfway through the story where I realized I had a major like I got to issue four and I realized I had a major problem with the story. So I stopped for about three months and rewrote the, the last half of the, the, the series and had to change a whole bunch of things. And um, might've even been like, it's over like three to six months of me just rewriting and really figuring out, make sure that everything, it was more that I wanted to make sure I knew that I liked the ending that I reached. However, I had not earned that ending. The arc that all of the characters went through to reach that ending was not fulfilling. Or at least it didn't truly, it didn't make, it didn't feel like they organically reached that ending. So I wanted to go back and make sure that all of the characters' journeys warranted where they ended up in the story. So it was just rewriting them, giving them more depth. Um, There was a big change I had to make to, to Lucifer in, in the series to, to make it all make sense. Yeah. And, um, and the point being is that I spent, you know, about a decade finishing that. Prior to that, I did my first graphic novel. That took me about five or six um, years to finish that. That one, I published that originally, Eye of the Gods. I published that as a self-contained graphic novel. So it just, it, I worked on it, finished it, dropped it as a whole book. I realized that I have so many stories and so many ideas that I want to tell that maybe it would behoove me to change my approach instead of trying to tell all these long epic stories to just try and condense it down to a novella that sums up the essence, the core of what I'm trying to say with that. Put that out, but structure in such a way, kind of like with Star Wars, you know, I mean, George Lucas started with episode four and he had obviously a whole lot of other things he wanted to tell in that world, but he started with what was the, the simplest thing he could tell as just a basic story. And that's what I want to start doing with all of my other comics going forward is simplify them down and not try to tell everything. Just tell this essence of a story and see how it's received. And if it's received well, then go ahead and go forward. If it's just sort of like, if no one is just sort of, you know, people aren't that interested, then move on to the next one and then just try and go through my stories. Now, that's not to say that if I come up with a story and I am, because I'm notoriously stubborn, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, um, I'm notoriously stubborn. It may well be that I may come up with a, a simplified version of the story and I'm like, okay, I still need to tell this trilogy of, of novellas. But it still would be something that'd be shorter than doing like an eight issue, 10 issue, 12 issue story. Because even Morningstar started off as a simple short story, like a single one issue story. And then as I developed that story, it caused me to do some some deep personal introspection. And that introspection satisfied the question that the original story had but it posed a whole new question. I said, well, that new question is far more interesting to me than the thing I was originally trying to answer with the short story. And that's how I ended up with an 80 shoe series that took me a decade. So I'm trying to get back to telling simpler, shorter stories, which from my answer, you can tell I'm not good at. (laughs) Well, listen, it takes a certain uh, talent to create something that's epic meaning that you go into details, into small details, and you have to take care of all. It's a different story, and it's a different talent. And, you know, you switch your head. But 
the thing you convey in a shorter story is different than the things you convey in a longer story. So maybe it doesn't fit. Maybe your stories don't fit a shorter uh, version. Uh, you know, and you should be happy with that. And who knows? It could be like, you know, Morningstar is amazing. And it could be that, you know, one more person, one more year of just live streaming and doing the newsletter and some, someone will find you and make it go viral. I don't know. Uh, it should. So, uh, hopefully. Well, you know, I mean, my the funny thing is I, I look at a lot of that stuff and for instance, I, I know a lot of people pursue uh, entertainment deals and pursue work being but, uh, Hollywood. I would... Hold on, just my point was in going viral, if mm-hmm. you sell enough, then you can uh, do it full time. That was my point. Go ah, okay. No, okay, yes, that, that's a good point. I would very much love for it to, to go viral. Um, yeah, I mean... Talk about it, entertainment it, deals. You're just going to say that. Hmm? You were just going to say something about entertainment deals. Oh, well, I mean, I, I know that early on when I started when I started doing conventions regularly with the book, a lot of people were, were pursuing... People have been actively pursuing Hollywood deals in terms of turning something into a TV show, turning something into a movie, getting it optioned by Netflix. And I've had meetings with people, but nothing that, that um, came to any fruition. But the thing that I noticed was that there were a lot of people who became so obsessed with chasing the deal that they stopped spending time making the actual thing. So I would love the opportunity to have my works out in other mediums, but... I don't want it to come at the expense of actually making comics because the fact of the matter is that that's the thing that I get the most gratification from. Um, I mean, in fact, in my, my day job, I work in the, uh, in the toy industry and I got to help co-create a cartoon series and I really enjoyed it. And I feel like I probably could have, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would have, I would have had the opportunity, but I got along very well with the guy who was our story editor. And I suppose I could have asked him like, what can I do to pursue writing and animation? But I was very hesitant to do it because at the time I definitely did not feel like I could pursue writing animation and continue to make comics on my own. And I think a lot of people would say, hey, I'm gonna take any entertainment job I can get because they pay real well. But for me, I, I had a hard time. I, I even now I have a hard time. Like I've designed my process so that I kind of have to do everything. Whereas most people are like, you try to delegate or collaborate with other people. Like the more people collaborators you have, the more you can do. You can do stuff quicker. It makes sense to do it that way. But I've kind of developed a workflow in which I'm kind of it's all unified. The writing is tied to the lettering. The lettering is tied to my thumbnails and my layouts. My layouts and my thumbnails are tied to me actually, you know, drawing the pages. And then I, the inking, I pencil so loosely that the inking is where it really comes together. Um, I feel like I'd have a hard time. The point is that having my, being, my head in my hands all the way in that, that pie of making the comics, like up to my elbows, that's when I'm the happiest. And I felt like, chasing other chasing entertainment deals at the expense of that would be self-defeating yeah i'd love it for something to become successful in other mediums so that i can afford like you said to just be able to just sit around and make comics all day long i could just be an ip machine just generating the prop generating the, the material that people are going to develop from other other people but i can't remember if it was mario puzo or whether it was Stephen King. I think it was Mario Puzo. He had that whole story about like making a deal with Hollywood. But no, it can't be Mario Puzo because Mario Puzo actually wrote the, the screenplay. Yeah. For, but there was, a, there was a screenwriter, there was a novelist who, um, who had talked, who I, rem- I can't remember now who it was. But he had the expression where he said the way they dealt with Hollywood was like the, the author, the novelist is on one side of a chasm. The Hollywood producer on the other side of the chasm. And the deal is, all right, you threw over the bag of money, I'll throw over the book. <laughs> no, you just throw it over. It's like, you do your thing with it, I'll take that, and you just, you go do your thing. That, that's more of, I think, my approach. It's like, just, you, you do your thing, 
you know, I'll get mine and just I'll I'll keep I'll keep making comics. You guys keep making movies and TV shows, and we'll, you know, yeah, healthy ecosystem. <laughs> nice. I think that's a good that's a great story to end on. So okay. tell people where where can we find you? All right. Well, you can find me on uh, Jeremy, and it's spelled G E R I M I dot net. So that's my website. It's got links to everything that I've mentioned before. It's got my newsletter. Um, it's got my books on there, but it's also got a link to my YouTube channel because that's where I'm, I'm live streaming. Um, I live stream every Sunday, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So I just, I, people just see what I'm working on, which these days I've been doing a series of illustrations based on Medusa, on uh, Gorgon mytho mythological creatures. Um, I've just been really fascinated with that. I think part of it is just the, the, the new book that I plan to do next. It's kind of seeping into my brain in, in that way. So it's coming out in the, the artwork. So I've just been doing standalone illustrations while I'm, I'm working on the new project in the background, which I'm eventually going to announce before the end of the year. Um, I keep wanting to be able to start making announcements, but the problem is that it, I'm in a long, I'm in a deep hole of research. So I'm just researching a lot and I'm reading more stuff and it's taking me down deeper and deeper holes. But if you want to watch me just when I'm not in a research hole, jeremy.net, you can watch me live stream. You can find my comics there. You can find links to everything else I am on the internet, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of those from jeremy.net. That's great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me, guy. This was really, really fun. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been enjoying getting to know you and hear you through all the interviews I've been listening to. I've been listening to quite a few. I've been binging your, your show. So it's, it's a great show. I love the variety and diversity of guests that you've had on, all the different backgrounds and hearing all these other creative stories along with the projects you've been working on. The audio book that you've been podcasting yeah. and, uh, and your comic Winter, which I, I saw some of the sample pages of that. That looks really, really cool. Thank you so much to Jeremy. All the links to Jeremy's website, Linktree, Twitter, Instagram, all the links are in the show notes. So check those out. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, we talk to an American comic book creator living in Taiwan and writing about Native American myths. Stick around for that. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpals.com. Hassan is spelled H-A-S-S-O-N. Geekdom in Pals is spelled Geekdom then in Pals. The website is geekdominpals.com on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're at Geekdom in Pals. If you want to check out my other podcast, the Squash Buckley Dies podcast, it's daily fiction, fantasy, and experiment like nothing that's ever been done before. We follow Joy Shelley, the girl who lives and dreams from birth to death. So feel free to check that out. It's the Squash Buckley Dies. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day!